And welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Julia Cook to the program today. Julia is a writer whose journalism has appeared in the New York Times, Smithsonian, Salon, and many others. Her first book was The Other Side of Paradise, Life in the New Cuba. And today we'll be discussing her latest, Come Fly the World, The Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Julia, watching old movies dating back to Humphrey Bogart and Betty Davis to the Technicolor era with Rock Hudson and Doris Day, as well as a lot of James Bond movies, Pan Am was a vision of the luxurious future today in Hollywood. But you yourself have a personal connection to Pan Am, don't you? I do, yeah. My dad worked for the airline until I was nine years old. And so did you ever have a chance to fly on the big blue meatball? Oh my gosh, all the time. Um, my, my mom used to pack us for hot or cold um, and then just show up at the airport with me and my sister and we'd meet my dad there and we would um, hop on whatever, whatever plane had four free seats. A large part of this glamour was, of course, the women who dealt with the passengers back then known as stewardesses. Yeah, they were known as stewardesses in the in the 60s and 70s. And then late 70s, early 80s, the terminology switched to, to flight attendant. So by the time I was, I knew them by the time they were kind of taking care of, of me and my, my little sister on the planes in the you know mid 80s, and they would have been known as flight attendants. But they were a large part of this image that the company used to advertise itself. A huge part of it. The glamour back then in the 60s in particular was really a 360 degree kind of thing. Um, On all airlines, they tended to use uh, couturiers like Christian Dior, Emilio Pucci, Oleg Cassini, Don Loper to design the uniforms that the stewardesses wore. They also hired the best architects to design terminals and corporate headquarters. Um, They served menus on Pan Am. They served menus designed by Maxims of Paris. The glamour was reinforced at every angle. And this was in large part possible because the airline industry was regulated by the federal government and fares were not cutthroat back then. They weren't. So the airlines had to find another way to compete. And so in-flight perks were one way that they could compete. And certainly the, the caliber of stewardesses was another way that they could compete. In your book, Come Fly the World, how did you choose the women that you would follow through the mid-1960s through the mid-1970s? So I knew that I really wanted to focus on that era because it was the era in which the women of, of various airlines really changed the job from a short, you know, two-year stint into a real profession. So once I, I honed in on the, the era, I just started interviewing women who had worked on the airline in that in that time. I found myself really fascinated, especially with the Vietnam War flights. So I, I knew I wanted to find women who had all worked on one of the many historic flights out of Vietnam that Pan Am ran. And I, I pretty soon found three women who had all worked on the Operation Baby Lift airlift flight uh, in, in 1975. And so their stories all start in various places around the world. When a young woman wanted to become a stewardess, especially with Pan Am, it was a very competitive process. It was incredibly competitive. They hired 2 to 3% of, of it, their applicants, numbers that are more stringent than Harvard. And what were some of these guidelines and statistics that women had to meet for this? I mean, they had to be educated and of a certain age and a certain size. Yeah, so th- there were physical requirements. They had to be between 5'3 and 5'9. They had to be a certain weight that was, you know, pegged to their height. They had to be quite pretty. They were assessed for their appearance in interviews, but they also really had to be very smart. They had to have a college education and they had to speak two languages. So there were a lot of really rigorous requirements. 
quite a few of them had done actually graduate level work as well. Yeah. And and you have to remember that in this era, in the 60s, something like 7% of American women had graduated from college. So these were really incredibly select women who were really drawn to the role because of the the international travel that it would afford them and the, the level of freedom. It was unparalleled. Now, back at this time was the end of the era when women would get married straight out of high school or college. And so these women were seeking to forestall that for a few years just so they could go and see the world. Absolutely. In the early 60s, the numbers are really staggering. Women got married really young and the late 60s, early 70s, it was a completely different number. The the age was much higher. Things had really changed. So these women were really part of this huge wave of women who, who knew that they wanted to live before they settled down. Now, there was a big misapprehension among the public about stewardesses. I mean, you have these accomplished women who've gotten bachelor's or even master's and PhDs who are doing these service job positions, and they didn't understand that these were accomplished people. They certainly didn't. You know, a, a lot of a lot of the the misapprehension of of what stewardesses were in that era comes back to uh, a 1968 book called Coffee Tea or Me, which was it bears the name of two stewardesses on Eastern Airlines. So I think the public really in that moment thought that it was um, you know a tell all that was coming straight from the mouths of women who experienced what the book depicted, when in reality. It was uh, written by a, a, an American Airlines PR guy who um, met two stewardesses, the two women that he names as the authors of the book, and really embellished using his imagination and, and what we would now look at as pretty um, stereotypical male fantasy. A bit of a scandalous book in its time. It certainly was. And it really did a lot to cement this image that stewardesses had in that era of being women who were out to to meet men, to go on dates, to um, you know use their new sexual freedom. The cultural uh, revolution of the era had granted to women um, to go shopping. They wanted to, to do, according to this man, they were really only interested in men and shopping. When in reality, among the women that I've met who were stewardesses on, certainly on Pan Am, but also on a lot of other airlines, these were women who were really world curious. They wanted to go different places and experience different places, not for the men by any means, but for um, for themselves. They they wanted to do, you know, go go to visit global monuments and and you know, of course, they did some shopping and and they went on dates with men when that when the opportunity presented itself and and, and when they wanted to. But uh, it was far from the only things that they were thinking about. And nowadays, rightfully, that book is listed in the fiction section. Yes. Yes, rightfully. So as a journalist who writes a lot about travel, what has this COVID time been like for you? It's been pretty settled. I've, I've been staying put in, up in Vermont. I live in Vermont and I, um, I have three very small children. So it, it, the timing of it has been somewhat opportune. It's been relatively easy for me to stay hunkered down, but it's, it's certainly been a trying time. This period between the mid-60s and the mid-70s, change and turmoil in the United States and this industry, this profession, is a microcosm of that change. So can we look a little bit at feminism and how the drive toward equal rights affected the profession? Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting because in my mind, you know, these women really 
reflected and then also um, acted out the changes that were happening uh, in other industries all around the United States. You know, as, as we already said, at the start of the 60s, women were getting married really young. Uh, women were also in the, the tiniest of numbers in graduate schools and, you know, in the legal profession they were starting and, you know, medical professions. The women were starting to do all of these things that had been traditionally male roles in, in larger numbers, but they were still pretty, pretty, pretty low numbers. Um, a lot of the women that I talked to told me that when they were growing up, they understood that they had three career options if they wanted to work and, and not just get married out of college, that they could be a nurse, a school teacher, or they could be a librarian um, or a secretary, actually. So that's four. Um, I misspoke. And then, of course, they could be a stewardess. And so if, if you think about it, the, the job offered a whole lot more freedom for a lot less friction. They didn't have to necessarily break ranks with um, what was understood to be traditionally feminine. They didn't have to push their way like the people who would have openly called themselves feminists and been working really hard for the, the freedoms that they were getting in law schools or medical schools or, or anything else. They, they could just become stewardesses and, and act out their feminism rather than openly proclaiming it and working for it. And of course, the irony is that those women and the work that they did, their dedication to it wound up setting a lot of the legal precedent that the feminist movement would then later come to rely on. Now that happened because the stewardesses really wanted to keep flying and the sexist job requirements required that women would quit when they got married or turned 32 or 35, depending on the airline. So they didn't really know it yet, but they were going to be very active in the feminist movement. They just weren't, they weren't quite aware of it when they signed up. And there were motivations beyond solely paternalistic ones in these requirements because there was a great financial incentive to keep the turnover going as well. Hugely, yeah. It was, it was much cheaper to keep the employees very young. Uh, they wouldn't have partners or, or children to pay for their health insurance. They also wouldn't have many health insurance costs themselves. Um, and they wouldn't be um, too demanding. They wouldn't really know their rights and act on them. It was really interesting to see that, that one of the reasons they didn't want married women in the position is that they didn't want the husbands calling to complain about their schedules to the airline. But, you know, they didn't, I guess, care about women calling to complain about pilots or navigators <laughs> schedules. Totally. Yeah. If you look back and read some of the law briefs, the legal briefs for some of these lawsuits in the late 60s, you know, these lawsuits had been happening since the early 60s. It was just that by the late 60s, the judges had started to really side with um, the stewardesses who were bringing the lawsuits rather than siding with the companies that were trying to keep the women young and unmarried. Uh, if you read some of the reasons that they cite for wanting the women to be unmarried, it's pretty, it's a real slice of time. <laughs> Along with being a stewardess, being in the uh, Foreign Service with the United States State Department, one of two ways that women could see the world in a profession, but both of those at the time, there was just virtually no opportunity at all for advancement in the ranks. There really wasn't. You know, um, one of the women that I profile in the book named Tori, she had really been interested in working in the Foreign Service. And so someone told her when she was in college that she would need to get a master's degree in order to enter the Foreign Service. And that really pushed me to do a lot of research about what it actually was like for the women who were working for the State Department back then. And it was it was really tough. There's a woman named Alison Palmer who um, wound up bringing a bunch of lawsuits against the U.S. government because it was made very clear to her over the course of the 60s that she would not be promoted past a certain level as 
as a woman uh, in the State Department. So that was not really an option. And then in Pan Am, there was a woman that I profiled who started working in the mid-50s for the airline, and she really, really wanted to work for management. She just kept applying over and over and over again over the course of the late 50s, early 60s, mid-60s. And again, it wasn't until the late 60s when, you know, equal employment opportunity lawsuits had begun to force corporations to, to really consider who could climb their ranks that she was able to get a job in management. And she was thrilled. She was absolutely thrilled. And it seemed appropriate enough that this variable schedule that a lot of the stewardesses and later flight attendants had made it possible for them to actually do graduate studies. Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of the women, especially, you know, in the early mid seventies and onward started bidding their flight schedules around uh, graduate schoolwork. If you think about it, it's kind of an ideal situation and you can get a paycheck and um, bid your flight schedule around being uh, at home on certain days and then you can do your work anywhere. Yeah. Once you've seen the Ginza district 55 times, you might as well sit in your hotel room and write some essays. Absolutely. Let's look at some of the more positive aspects of the position. Why was Hong Kong considered such a great posting back in the day? Oh my gosh, I would do anything to have been able to see Hong Kong in the mid 60s. It sounds amazing. You know, it was it was considered a really great posting because, first of all, the women who lived there, uh, if, if they were able to you know, swing living at the base there, they could hire help. They could afford to have domestic help so they wouldn't have to do any of the cleaning or cooking themselves, which they loved. They would get a, a foreign station uh, allowance allotment. They got an extra couple hundred dollars from the company to live out there. And the living was cheap enough that they could save that. So they were pretty much pocketing um, their entire paychecks, which was huge back then for, for women to be able to have that kind of financial freedom and independence was amazing. And life was even cheaper there because the tailors were, were amazing, as they still are. Um, they could get their clothes on for cheaper prices, uh, and they were also uh, able to meet and mix with this really uh, exciting uh, expat community if they wanted to. Some of the women did spend more time with the local, uh, the people who lived there who were from uh, Hong Kong, the, the um, local people. But most of them really spent their time with the expat community, in part because they were in and out so much that they, um, they wanted to, you know, create a community of people who were also in and out. So that was journalists and ambassadors and soldiers. And, and it was really exciting, fun milieu. Pan Am's expansion into Asia led them to hire Asian American stewardesses in kind of like the first bid toward integration of the ranks. Yeah, um, it, it did. Uh, they hired in the 1950s a group of women that they called their Nisei stewardesses. Um, and the, the, it was, you know, they nominally they hired them so that they could uh, speak Japanese. But, but, but these women were actually mostly the children of um, Japanese immigrants to Hawaii. So uh, really, it was just kind of a, a window dressing sort of um, attempt at integration. It wasn't really very substantive or meaningful. And in fact, the actual racial integration of the airline um, wouldn't really happen until after the um, EEOC uh, and, and the, um, the employment law had, had changed and, and the airlines really had to think much more um, you know, concretely about uh, how, who was going to work for the airline. And that's when the racial integration really began to happen in the late 60s. So as we said, you know, this profession does show the, the changes of the time and microcosm and the person you choose to follow to 
look at the civil rights era and how it is affecting this profession is Hazel Bowie. Can you tell us a little bit about Hazel's life and journey? Hazel's a really remarkable woman. Her mom used to tell her that she had no fear uh, because Hazel would always, Hazel was a, an incredibly curious person. She still is. Um, she would just say yes to almost anything. Uh, so that meant that she had a lot of really uh, interesting experiences in the 60s and um and one of those experiences, she was really determined to, to leave um, Minnesota where she grew up. She just wanted to get anywhere. Um, and, and she really saw the airlines as being her vehicle out. Uh, she had seen advertisements for the airlines in Emity and Jet and um, the different magazines that airlines started to advertise with because once, um, one, you know, in the early 60s, their uh, hiring policies were really scandalously uh, to the current, to my eye, um, pretty scandalously racist. Uh, they were very open about not wanting to hire Black Americans. Um, and it was really pretty, it's pretty appalling to go back and look at um, how they tried to defend themselves again in court. But um, again, in court, uh, they those policies fell thanks to the EEOC. Um, and you know the civil rights legislation. So once those policies shifted, they needed to start recruiting um, on all sorts of different airlines, and they they did so via advertising in um, Ebony and Jet, and the magazines, and they did so via the Urban League. Um, and Hazel Hazel found out about uh, these new opportunities for stewardessing, and she just sent out a whole bunch of applications to anywhere. Um, and Pan Am was the first airline that responded and said, come on in for an interview. And she, of course, said yes. And when you mentioned that her mother said she had no fear, that was not a compliment in her mother's eyes back in the day. No, it certainly was not. Her mother was was quite frightened for Hazel. Um, she felt like Hazel tended to, to dive into almost anything. Um, and she was really afraid uh, for her daughter's safety. Not, not an unfounded fear, um, but Hazel was, was incredibly determined. Because her family's experience returning to her parents' home in Mississippi from their uh, home in Minnesota was always a dangerous sojourn. It was, yeah. I, I, I looked at a bunch of the Green Book guides to understand what that journey would have been like for them. They drove from Minnesota down to Mississippi every year. Um, and, and it really, it, it's pretty, it's it's shocking um, and you know, and at the same time, not at all surprising to see um, how how circumscribed and how dangerous their lives really were. I read a, an, an, a horrific book about um, sundown towns um, all across the middle of the country. Uh, the, the amount of danger that, that was posed to their family just on that drive every um, year when they were going to visit family was really, um, it, was, it was horrible. And they would drive at night so as to not raise the ire of racist folks during the daytime, it was dangerous even beyond physical violence, just the amount of not stopping and exhaustion would lead a lot of families to, to horrible accidents. Yeah, absolutely. The whole thing, um, it, it made me really understand why Hazel would have wanted to take the job in a different way. That physical freedom and the idea of being able to travel around the world with um, the backing of, of a, a, a corporation behind her, um, it, it, it would have been a really remarkable thing. Um, but, but one thing that my research really made me think was that I, I really hope that someone writes a book um, just about the black stewardesses of the era. Um, I think there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot left to be mined by someone who understands the, um, the context a little better than I can, of course. And my task was to write an intersectional portrait of a group of really remarkable women. 
um, and, and not to focus on explicitly uh, only Hazel's experience. But, but what I found was that, um, it, I mean, I, I sincerely hope that someone does that work in, in more detail. Well, and it was for Hazel and was, I think, for Lynn near the beginning of the book that both of them had graduated from college and their parents were a little bit dumbfounded that their daughters wanted to go into this profession that was not valued by the public at large. Absolutely. Yeah, it wasn't only about race by any stretch. A lot of the, most of the white women that I I interviewed, um, their parents were appalled on some level that they wanted to become stewardesses. Because if you think about it, these women were incredibly well prepared. They were um, the best and brightest in a way. They were well spoken. They were diplomatic. They were pretty. They were incredibly well educated. Uh, They had been, you know, raised to take advantage of, um, of, the, the new freedoms of the era. Uh, and, and this was how they chose to, to use their freedom. And their parents were, um, were surprised uh, and, and sometimes appalled. Uh, I think the, the, the stereotypes of the, time, of the day, um, even that, that Copy to Your Me book certainly worked to, to make parents um, a little bit afraid that their daughters were not going to fit in among these groups of people. And of course, the irony was that, um, especially on Pan Am, uh, the women that they did hire, Uh, they fit in with one another because they had nothing to do with that stereotype. In addition to having to deal with passengers from all different types of national backgrounds, another skill came into mind and that, especially in the Pacific routes, flight attendants had to carry Geneva Convention cards. Why was that? Yeah, they did. They had to carry Geneva Convention cards that designated them second lieutenants in the U.S. Armed Forces so that um, if they wound up being assigned a a flight into Saigon, which all women could turn down, but turning down um, meant that they probably wouldn't be doing much flying through Southeast Asia and for a group of women who all signed up because they wanted to fly everywhere, absolutely everywhere. That was not something they were going to do. So they, um, they, they wound up most of the women uh, who were based in LA or San Francisco wound up at some point on um, Vietnam War flights, taking soldiers, American soldiers into the war. So they carried their Geneva Conventions cards um, just in case if, if the airplane uh, landed in enemy territory or was shot down, which was uh, a possibility, a distinct possibility. A lot of the flights were shot at various times. Uh, they wanted the crews to be treated as prisoners of war. They're of course bringing soldiers and Marines and sailors from America over to Vietnam. And they're also shuttling these service members to their R&R, what they got five days once a year to go somewhere in the Asian theater and enjoy themselves for a few days. Yeah, so so these women were flying these these plane loads of incredibly young men either into war or out of war for a vacation and then back into war or back home for um, on their final flight. And each of these flights had a very different um, tenor to them. In general, the flights into war were incredibly solemn. Um, Very, uh, the women were carrying a group of frightened men who did not know what awaited them or if they were coming back from vacation um, who really, you know, didn't want to be going back to war, obviously. I remember this was the time of the draft. So a great number of those men uh, didn't, didn't necessarily want to be doing uh, that service. Um, some of them did. It was it was a hugely varied group, obviously, um, and and you know the the that variation was also reflected in the crews. The women themselves uh, all responded really differently to this task. And it's ironic that a group of women who had postponed motherhood, if they were going to become parents, at some point, 
then almost had to become mother figures for these young men who were maybe just five or six years younger than they were. It's a really good point. They they told me about, you know, listening to these men unburden themselves and talk about their fears or the girlfriends that were waiting for them back home or the experiences that they'd had in, in war. Um, they were really, they, they uh, the women felt a great degree of gravity about um, the role that they played for these these men, no matter what their position was about the war itself. Um, and, you know, I spoke with some women who really, uh, who were active in the anti-war protest movement. They did not agree with um, the U.S. Uh, involvement in Vietnam at all. Um, but they really did take it incredibly seriously that these were uh, young men who deserved um, dignity and, uh, you know, to be treated like complex human beings um, on this really uh, charged flight. Now, the book works to a series of flights that help refugees leave Vietnam, but I think we should leave that for the the readers to experience. But the experience of being a flight attendant and a stewardess for Pan Am has been one that has given these women identities that they come together still to this day to reminisce and and talk about their time as, as these stewardesses and flight attendants. Absolutely. You know, the way that I think about it, I think about all that travel has given to me. Um, you know, I think about the way that I came to know myself so much better through the traveling that I did in my 20s and, and you know, even outside of pandemic into the present day. Um, travel has given me so much. It's enabled me to see myself um, in different places and understand better who I am. For these women, it really offered them the ability to um, to test themselves against different backdrops. So the travel was not just about, um, you know, seeing other places. It was about understanding themselves. Um, and as a result, they have a, a deep um, allegiance to the airline and they have a deep sense of a bond with each other for the most part, so that they've been they've been really active in the alumni community. Um, a lot of them have been, and, and a lot of them still go on trips together and they, they really, um, they, they're really remarkable women in their um, 70s and 80s and onward. In your other journalism, you've written extensively about Cuba. You wrote a book about it, in fact. And during this period that you're writing about, it was almost the cachet, the hijacking to Cuba on an airliner. What was that like for the, the flight attendants back then? It was so interesting to read about. Time magazine published a kind of tongue-in-cheek guide to what to do when the hijacker comes. It was a really frequent occurrence in the late 60s um, and early 70s to, to be on a hijacked plane. Um, many of the people who hijacked the planes were heading to Cuba. There's a good book out there called um, The Skies Belong to Us by an author named Brendan Corner um, that, that really goes into much more depth about um all of the, the hijackings of the era and what motivated the people to get on the planes and, and you know, tell the stewardess to, you know, tell the captain to go to a certain uh, place. But a, a lot of those people were trying to get to Cuba. Um, and it was fascinating to me to see that uh, it was really seen as a novelty. It was a, a, an exciting night out in Havana because um, the, at that point, the, the flights, none of the hijackings had been deadly yet. Um, they would turn deadly pretty quickly, but um, for, for a period of time there, they were just a kind of fun and funny occurrence that had a moment of danger and a moment of fear, but then they would wind up spending the night in Cuba um, and, you know, often being put up at a great hotel um, and then sometimes even going to a cabaret, drinking some mojitos um, and then turning right back around and getting back on a plane the next day to head home. And this is like almost a hundred hijackings somewhere in that neighborhood that mm -hmm. happened over that 10 years or so. 
Yeah, the numbers are, are mind-boggling. It happened like every couple of days. So as a travel journalist who has been at home for a year now, do you have plans for your first trip to investigate and write about? I don't. Um, I, I'm so excited to go someplace. I, I had planned to go to um, Lisbon with my family uh, last summer. We didn't have, we, we weren't at the point where we had to cancel tickets. That would have been a real heartbreak. Um, it was still, you know, in the air. Uh, but uh, that that's definitely high up there. At the same time, I'd also love to get back to Havana. I have a number of really good friends down there that I haven't seen in way too long. Uh, I'm really thinking a lot about the places that I've been to and, and miss a lot and really love the places that I used to go to with some frequency, like Mexico City and Havana and Lisbon, um, much loved cities. Uh, those are the places that I think I'm prioritizing. Well, Julia, I want to thank you so much for talking with us today about Come Fly the World. Thank you so much for having me. Julia Cook is the author of Come Fly the World, the Jet Age Story of the Women of Pan Am, which is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. I'm Stephen Ussery, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.